Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 25. As you've noticed, we've done things just a little bit different today. I was tired of fighting with all your conversations for announcements, so we've placed them now after worship. Um, so what you can expect going forward now is worship to bring us in, announcements, the elders' prayer, which this took place of today, and then the sermon. So I thank you that you guys are so good at adapting. So if you have your Bibles, open them. Acts 25, we're continuing in our series in the book of Acts today. And uh, I'm looking forward that it's coming to its end, but I'm so thankful for the, rich, the richness that we have seen in the pages of Scripture. Have you ever noticed that you can experience the same thing as someone else but remember it completely different. I, this happens often as my siblings and I, we reminisce about the past. They always seem to have the wrong memory and mine always seems to be right. And, uh, but <laughs> in all seriousness, it is quite humorous that we can have the same event, the same thing play out before our eyes as individuals and we can all recall it differently. Just look up how you spell Bernstein bear. Some people say you spell it one way, some say you spell it the other way, and we all have different memories from growing up and how you spell the word Bernstein. It's, it's, it's really interesting that we can all have these different views and memories of the exact same event. And it's the same thing in marital relationships and even in dating relationships. Uh, uh, when I go through uh, premarital prep with couples, I call this looking at the same mountain from two different sides, okay? It's like if you and I were at one of our beautiful Canadian Rockies, and you were on one side of the mountain, and I was on the other side of the mountain, we were talking over phone, and we were describing to each other the exact same mountain, guess what? We're going to have different descriptions. Our tree line is going to look different. Our rock formation is going to look different. How we both took in the sunset is going to differ depending on where you're standing and radius with where the sun is. And, but we're describing the same mountain. And I mentioned this because in Acts 25 today, we have the same story from two different perspectives. We have Paul and we have his story, and then we have Festus's story. And it's almost like they're looking at the same event, the same mountain from two different sides. So with that in mind, let's together read through the entire chapter of 25. I know this is a little different than what we do, but with how this chapter is laid out, it's easier to read through it all, and then I will make some observations for you. So starting in verse 1, it should be on the screen. I might click her off. Now, three days after Festus has arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jew, uh, uh, sorry, and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Uh, on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let men of authority come among you, go, uh, among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And he 
stayed among, among them not more than eight or ten days. He went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him and they could, that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and therefore be tried on these charges before you? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. And if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their cases against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appeared to be uh, appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with a great pomp and they entered the day uh, and they entered the audience, sorry, hall and with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man whom the whole Jewish uh, people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and he himself appealed to the emperor. I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to be, unreason uh, to be to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Okay, you survived 27 verses. Good job. <laughs> in the first 12 verses, we are looking at Paul's interaction in this story. And in the rest of the verses, it's Festus's interaction with King Agrippa. So as we go through this chapter, we're going to see three main things uh, given to our, that I want to give our attention to. The first is pursuing peace at the cost of justice. 
The second is the power of holy living. And the third is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's start with the first, which is pursuing peace at the cost of justice. We pick up this story with Paul being left in prison. Governor Felix put Paul in prison and left him there for two years to do the Jews a favor. But then he was replaced by Governor Festus. And two years, you got to think about, is a long time. Just think about your own life. Think about how much has happened in, your, in the last two years in your life. Just think about what has happened in our world, in our country, in the last two years. A lot has transpired. And imagine how much Paul has missed. How, what has happened during his two years of incarceration. How he probably yearned to keep going, to keep sharing the gospel and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to new people groups, but he was stuck in a prison for political reasons. But now Festus is governor and he's taking action. He's the new kid on the block, so to say. And in three days on his job, he's already coerced by the Jews uh, when he goes down to Jerusalem. And I'm sure this was quite the nuisance and annoyance for Festus. He's the new boss. He's squeaky clean. He wants to impress Rome. And out of nowhere, he gets uh, uh, bombarded by these requests as he tackles one of the most difficult regions in the Roman empires, and he's faced with conflict on his third day. And Festus knows that he's truly go, if he's truly going to have peace in Israel, he needs to win Jews over on his side. And if he can produce peace, he will truly be looked upon with favor by Rome. So you can almost sense this tension that Felix has. He is stuck between a rock and a hard place. Last week, we said how historians were very critical of his predecessor, Felix. But those same historians share that Festus was a more suitable and reasonable leader than Felix was. But though he was not a perfect leader either, Festus was far more of a diplomat than his buddy before. And he was the kind of ruler who wanted to preserve the peace at all costs. So he wanted peace in his region and he would pursue this peace in his region no matter what it would cost him. Even if he would have to deny Paul justice so that he might have peace. Festus was the type of politician who would make shady deals. If you scratch my back, I will scratch your back. He wasn't truly leading for the people. He was doing what would make him look glorious and good. And the Jews wanted a favor, and he knew if he would do the Jews a favor, he would expect their allegiance and their peace. But although he doesn't give the Jews exactly what they want, they wanted Festus, as seen in verse 3, to bring Paul down to Jerusalem. In all actuality, they were going to kill him. But in verse 4 and 5, we see Festus declining this offer and informing them that I'm going to be heading back to Caesarea and you are welcome to bring Jewish authorities with me um, and uh, you can lay charges against him officially. And they agree to do so and they come down and they try their best to lay charges against Paul. But as we see in verse 7, they could not get any of those things to stick. And because of this peace-loving that Festus has, Festus finds himself in trouble because now he sees clearly with his own eyes that Paul is innocent and he's being held by Rome without any actual charges. And if anyone catches wind of this up the ladder, his neck could be on the line. 
And literally his neck could be on the line. They don't just fire you from jaws back, then they kill you. Now, if you fire me, please just fire me. Don't kill me, okay? So, uh, so Festus is in a tough spot. He wants to get the support and favor of the Jewish nation so things go well, but he also wants to uphold Roman law, which is his job. So Festus responds uh, to all of this in verse 9, still seeking to give a favor to the Jews, asking if Paul wanted to do this trial in Jerusalem. Because if Paul, if you're really innocent, you have nothing to be concerned about. It's hard to know if he knew that the Jews were going to kill him or not. I think he probably did, and he was thinking this might be a silver bullet. We can get rid of him. Everybody will be happy. Rome doesn't even need to know. But he realizes when Paul appeals to his right as a Roman citizen, to go stand before Caesar in verse 10 and 11, his problems just get worse. The problems of Festus continue to fester. Come on. You know I had to do it. It was right there. Okay, so he is stuck. He's in a hard situation that he has to work through. And to do this, he had to pursue peace at the cost of of justice. And over the last few weeks, the book of Acts has brought up this topic of government and Paul's view of government and how the government is a servant of God for the good of people to preserve the peace and punish evil. So Paul believes that. So he appeals to Caesar because he knows that Caesar is still under the authority of Christ. And Festus's problems continue to get worse because now he can't get rid of Paul on behalf of the Jews. And if Paul goes up to Caesar and Caesar examines him and finds no fault, then Caesar's going to think, who is this new guy, Festus? He can't even figure out one simple task. So Festus calls his council, lays out the pickle they are in, and they come to the conclusion that Paul is right. He's innocent. Let's send him to Caesar. We'll bring King Agrippa. We're going to write all this thing about him and try to make a look, explain the tensions in the region. If we keep him, it's going to be riots. Rome, you don't like riots. This is probably what they're trying to argue back and forth. So they said, go, send him. And uh, because this will also solve the problem that Paul's here. He'll be in Rome in a prison. The Jews should be happy. And now we're not in Roman politics. I hope we're not anyways. And, and we're not a governor over a region in Rome. But there are some sinful ditches that we tend to fall into that this text brings to light. And the biggest sinful ditch that we tend to fall into as people is the approval of others. We're a slave to the approval of others. Can you see that with Festus? How he wanted to support, uh, wanted the support and approval of the Jews and Rome and would do anything to preserve that peace in order to have that approval. And we too, as people, as Christ followers, we tend to have this problem. Approval of people will make you act in favor of one person over the other, and we're told not to act in partiality explicitly in Scripture. Look at what uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 20, uh, 21. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep the rules uh, uh, without prejudging doing nothing, nothing from partiality, nothing from favoritism. Again, he says in James, James 2.1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
Festus was showing partiality to the Jews, looking to cut deals and favors as a way to preserve the peace. He was exchanging justice for the approval of man. How are you prone to this sin? How are you prone to seeking the approval of people rather than the approval of God? How does the approval of man motivate you? How does it get your attention? How does it dictate your life and keep your focus? How does the approval of man influence your desires and your decision-making and run your life? Are you fear-driven? Are you afraid, therefore, you seek the approval of others? What are you willing to give up in order to get this approval? What will you sacrifice so that others will approve of you? Or let me say it this way. What type of destruction have you brought into your life so that others might approve of you? Because this will enslave you. This this mindset, this understanding, this way that you live your life in the eyes of others so they approve of you will enslave you and destroy you. When Festus cuts a deal with the Jewish people, do you think this is the last time that Festus would do this? Or do you think that by setting this precedent, Now Festus has to keep the bar set and they would come back and come back and threaten unrest. And that's exactly what sin does in our life. That's exactly how sin works in our lives as believers. You feed your sinful desire once and guess what? It demands more, it demands more, and it demands more until it has all of you. And by going down this slippery slope of compromise, sin will destroy you. It will enslave you and it will bound you up if you keep going down that road. It will demand more of you until sin kills you. That's what sin does. Sin is not some fun little party session. Sin wants to kill you. Paul says the wages of sin is death. What we get as a result of sin is death. Puritan John Owen describes the pursuit of righteousness and repentance this way. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin. He's using hard language on purpose. You have to mortify sin. It has to be killed or it will kill you. To the Roman church, Paul wrote about the consequences of sin because they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And what do they do? They worshiped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Did you catch that? They exchange the truth of God for what? It's right there. For a lie. You don't have to be scared. What do you exchange the truth of God for in your life? What are you chasing after? Festus exchanged justice for the approval of man. Where are you seeking a lie in your life for perverted peace, for an upside down peace, for for something that is not even peace at all? Where? Because it will destroy you as it eggs you on, telling you that everything is okay. Just keep going. No, no, no. Don't pay attention to that. Be on guard, church. As the Bible says, sin is crouching at your door and it's looking to overthrow you. 
So if God has been gracious to you and has shown you your sin, where you're chasing after and believing lies, then the first step you should do is bring it to God in confession, to agree with God about the nature and reality of your sin. Call a spade a spade. Oh, I made a mistake. No, you sinned. You fornicated. You looked at pornography. You lust it. Don't, oh, I made a mistake. No, you're a sinner. You've sinned. Agree with God to the reality and depth and hardships of your sin and receive his grace and forgiveness because you are righteous in Christ, church. Confess that you agree with God about your sin and repent and receive his gracious forgiveness. So where are you exchanging the truth of the glory of God for a lie? This is a warning to us all because it will destroy us. It will take over our life and it will wreak havoc. We see this with Festus. Remember looking at the mountain from two different sides and he stands in such contrast to the apostle Paul. Festus is acting shady. He's ready to sell Paul out, but Paul is so confident. He says, send me off to Caesar. Let me be tried. Send me to the most powerful court in the world, to the most powerful man in the world and let him examine me. And I guarantee you, he will not find an offense that will stick. And why? Because Paul understood the power of holy living. They had no charges to bring against Paul. He was squeaky clean. And what does Acts 25, 8 say in your Bible? It's Paul speaking. And he says that I have committed no offense against anyone. Not to this court, not to Jerusalem, not to the law of God, not to Caesar, to no one. He's squeaky clean. They can't bring any offense against me. And all the offenses they are bringing are not true. He is innocent in all regards. And these accusations that are being made are not true. He's saying, I've lived with such integrity that none of these things can stick. None of these claims can find legs to stand against me. Because the power of holy living is not just doing the right things. It's easy just to do the right things. Because you can do the right things in the wrong way with the wrong attitude. You can, quote-unquote, obey God at the same time of having a rebellious attitude towards him. The power of holy living is in the Holy One himself, Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? God himself is perfectly holy. He's transcended above all, and he is set apart entirely from sin. And John the Apostle said when he talks about the holiness of Jesus, when he appeared to take away the sins of the world, in him he said there is no sin. Because God is holy and there is no sin to be found. So being in Christ, he has forgiven sinners, which are you and me in Christ, his people who are being sanctified, transformed to become more like Jesus. And what does he say about himself? When he says, I am holy, he expects his people to be a certain way. Leviticus 11.45 says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And what does he say? You shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. And then Peter, if any of you guys are like, well, we can't believe the Old Testament, he piggybacks off of this, uh, which is a wrong thing to believe, by the way. Uh, he piggybacks off this in 1 Peter 1.15. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And conduct means living in all that you say, do, think, and be. You are to be holy. So when God saves you, though, get this. He doesn't just demand you to this impossible task and then watch you fail because he's a God of grace. Amen? 
He saves you and he puts a new heart in you. And then he puts a new desire in you, a desire to hate sin and to, re- and to run away from it, a desire to love Jesus, which isn't natural to us, and to worship him and to run to him and to be embraced by him. It's a desire to love what God loves, and it's a desire to hate what God hates. It's a desire to act as Jesus acted and to become more like him in every single way. This is what he calls his people to be, to be holy. But what's amazing is he puts in his people a new heart and a new desire to pursue holiness, which empowers us in righteousness, meaning it's not by our efforts. You're not just doing all the right things and ticking all the right boxes. So God goes, oh, finally, Aaron, you idiot, you're finally becoming righteous. No, he says, I know you're an idiot, Aaron, and you would never choose this, so I'm going to send my son to die for you and clothe you in my righteousness and justify you and sanctify you, and one day he's going to glorify you. And it's an unbreakable chain. It's not by your efforts. Colossians 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new mind. He gives you new loves, new desires. And he says, think about glorious Jesus on his throne. Fix your eyes on him. Transfix your gaze upon the risen and resurrected Lord. And you will become obsessed with what you see. You will be satisfied completely because the The reason why we sin as believers anymore is because we're saying to Jesus, you don't satisfy me completely. This well over here will. This will satisfy me completely. Not you, Jesus. And that's when we sin. But if we fix our eyes on things that are above, if we set our minds on things that are above, we will be satisfied completely. Do you believe that? And it will keep us from sinning. It will keep us from stumbling. Ephesians 5, 1 to 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. And lastly, in Galatians 2, 20, he says, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's you too. You have been crucified with Christ. And look what it says. It's no longer you who live, but who? Christ living through you. And it's the life not that you live by flesh, but by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. What an amazing verse. It's not you. It's Christ. And as we grow in our love and faith in Jesus, we become more like him. And that's what salvation does. That's called sanctification. And say this with me. Sanctification is a process. Okay, you're not expected to be 100% perfect today. It's a process and it's a slow process. But when you become a Christian, Jesus justifies you and he calls you righteous now. He calls you perfect now. He calls you holy now, blameless now because of his death and resurrection. Not just in eternity, not just in the future, but now. And the sanctification is a process that just kind of catches up with that declaration. 
While we live and pursue God, he is working out your sanctification. And Philippians says, he who started a good work in you, guess what? He will bring it to completion. Amen? He's not going to leave you. Uh, you didn't try hard enough this week. Uh, Solo, sorry, you're gone. Out of the family. Try again next week, maybe. That's not our God. He doesn't regret saving you. He doesn't regret you. He's not an angry father who he gets angry and pushes you out of his presence because you're not living up to him. He loves you and he knows your mistakes. And he still said, yeah, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for you. So as we slowly become more like Jesus and we put away our sins and we put on Christ, we are learning. Really hear that. We are learning to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And Paul believed this. Paul believed this to every fiber of his being. He taught this and he confidently spoke about this, of the work and life of Jesus. And he says, I have done nothing wrong because Christ has transformed me. Take a look at my life and you will see that there is no offense deserving death. Which takes us to our last point as I begin to close, which is the resurrection. Paul had committed no offense and had no accusations from the Jews that could stand, that could bring him to death. And Festus unwittingly points out the true conflict that's happening here because it's not any of the offenses that they're saying, but rather it's this. Look at verse 19. He says, Rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead. But what does Paul claim? He asserted to be alive. The real offense here, friends, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The offense is that Jesus said that the Jews have sinned against God and that Jesus being God could offer them forgiveness. The offense is that the Jews hate it and killed Jesus. The offense is that God raised Jesus from the dead and then appointed him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords over everyone, including the Jews. And Paul believed that and taught this and he preached that in the streets of Jerusalem and all around where he went and some Jews believed it as well and converted and believed. The resurrection of Jesus was the offense. Make no mistake, that's what they're angry about. And if you're not a Christian, you're here today or you're watching online or whatever you're doing, if you just think about this and be honest for a moment, is the resurrection of Jesus an offense to you? Because if you are outside of our Christ, the resurrection, what it tells you is that you as a sinner are still under the judgment of God. A sinner that is in need of a savior. It tells you that sin is real and then it shows you the consequences of that sin, that it's death. Is the resurrection of Jesus an offense to you today? Because it tells you that God is mighty over all things, including sin and death. And if he's over sin and death, you better believe he is over you. You are not Lord or King of your life. That is God's position. Is the resurrection of Jesus an offense of you? Jesus Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and is folly to the Gentiles or non-Jews. It's a stumbling block and folly to them. So is it a stumbling block or folly to you or foolishness to, to you? Because it doesn't have to be. 
Look at the length that God went in Paul's life so that people could hear the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection and forgiveness of sins and offer of eternal life. So let me ask you this. What length have God went to so that you could hear the gospel of Jesus? What has he been doing in your life that you, that you could end up here right now today and hear the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection? Do you know how far God has gone for you. Just look at the cross. Look at the cross. Jesus himself died. He died the death of a sinner. He died your death. Yet he was perfect, yet he was blameless, so that he might offer forgiveness to sinners who are not, to people like you and me who are not. God has raised him from the dead that he might secure for you this salvation you have. How much further does God have to go to wake you up, to get your attention, to fix your eyes on Jesus and his love for you? How much further does he need to go because he has already crushed his only son that you might have rescue, forgiveness of your sins and have life? God has done what has been seemed impossible. He has conquered sin and death. So let me ask you again. Is the resurrection of Jesus an offense to you or is it life? Is the resurrection of Jesus foolishness or is it the wisdom of God to rescue sinners? God has offered you salvation. Do not put it off. That would be foolishness. God has offered you forgiveness. Do not put it off because that would be the greatest offense to the man who willfully died on the cross. And what's amazing is all he tells you to do is to confess your sins to him and to come to him in faith and to believe and receive the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 uh, uh, says, if because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he goes on in verse 10 to 11, for with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him is what? Not put to shame. Do you feel that? Do you struggle with shame? Do you carry shame? Do you carry guilt? Because everyone who believes in him is not put to shame. How else will you become shameless? How else will you deal with the guilt that you feel? How else will you deal with the filth that you feel in your life than coming to Jesus who takes your shame who takes your guilt, who cleans you because he is the clean one and purifies you. This is the good news of the gospel. He says, friend, come, believe, confess, be done with sin, be done with shame today, be done with guilt, be done with sin, be done with destruction today. Amen? Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you, from eternity past, sent your Son, Lord, to die 
in my place, in our place, so that we could stand righteous before you, so that we could stand boldly in your presence. Father, we confess that it's not what I do. It's not what this church does. It doesn't matter how many programs or how many scriptures we have memorized, Lord, but we are saved and we are blessed because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to live in that, not to the slavery of the opinions of others, but that we would walk in our true identity, which is in Christ. Bless our, our last song, Lord, and as we go, we pray that you would use us, Father, as your servants in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.